The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Governor Baker has said he wants a grand bargain in the legislature to sort out issues like the minimum wage and the sales tax, which are otherwise headed for the November ballot. Now, time is running out to reach a deal like this, and the talks took a hit this week. But Matt Murphy, are these talks dead? Well, thanks, Sam. And no, I would say these talks are not dead, at least not yet. The Raise Up Coalition, which is behind a few of these ballot questions, including the push to raise the minimum wage from 11 to $15 an hour and to institute paid family and medical leave, wrote to the Speaker and the Senate presidents this week, informing them that their talks with the Retailers Association over this grand bargain to keep the minimum wage and a potential sales tax cut down to 5% off the ballot have reached an impasse. But lawmakers are urging both sides to stay at the table. They say that they still have three and a half weeks until that July 3rd deadline when the final round of signatures need to be submitted uh, to reach a deal. And for now, it seems that the retailers and lawmakers are not giving up. What happens if no deal gets reached? Well, I think this is the big question. So far, it appears the talks over paid family and medical leave, which began much earlier than the talks over the minimum wage and the sales tax, and have by all accounts been really cordial and productive, are very close to getting done. And there is a scenario under which uh, lawmakers and people involved in these negotiations say they think the legislature could do the PFML bill, get that done, get that taken off the ballot. Then it becomes a question of the minimum wage and the sales tax, with the Supreme Judicial Court decision over the millionaire's tax hanging over all of this. If the court is going to knock the millionaire's tax off the ballot, that would potentially create a a nightmare scenario for lawmakers who are uh, concerned about losing $1.2 million from a sales tax cut, which is polling very well at nearly 70%, and also not getting the additional revenue that they've been banking on for a couple of years now from the also very popular millionaire's tax. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Sam. Next week, the Senate takes up a bill with a lot to offer for the renewable energy sector, and it might cause some concern among others in the electrical field like utilities and owners of fossil fuel plants. Andy Metzger has been covering this issue for us. Uh, Andy, what's the Senate hoping to accomplish next week? Uh, Solar energy has been on the rise since 2007, when there were three megawatts of solar capacity in Massachusetts. There are now 2,100 megawatts of installed solar. Um, And environmentalists want renewable energy to really turn the corner and become dominant and eventually the exclusive source of electricity for the state. And the Senate bill is a step in that direction. Uh, The bill that will be taken up Thursday would eliminate the cap for commercial solar projects to obtain favorable rates for the electricity they produce. That's called uh, net metering. It would also ramp up utilities' required purchases of renewable energy, and it would allow the state to dramatically expand our reliance on offshore wind and other renewables, a sort of tripling or quadrupling down on the deals announced earlier this year with Vineyard Wind and Central Maine Power. 
Now, it's kind of late in the season to just be passing a bill if the goal is to enact it by the end of formal sessions on July 31st, right? That's right. It's about the best time of year if you're generating solar electricity. The sun is as bright as it'll be. <laughs> Fair, um, yep. but, uh, but it's getting to crunch time for actually getting a bill to the governor's desk. Um, the Senate has had a big appetite for bills that would please the renewable energy sector, um, and the House has been a little more moderate in that regard. Um, but there are areas of agreement between the two branches, and so the challenge for them will be to find those opportunities for compromise. And in that the biggest challenge may be the calendar. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Sam. Beacon Hill is still studying Governor Baker's bill calling for new tools to address the opioid crisis. But in the meantime, Mike Norton is here with us to talk about another approach government is taking to deal with this epidemic. What's up, Mike? Well, Sam, the opioid crisis has many elements, and it looks like litigation is shaping up as one of them. Just a few months after taking office, Framingham's first mayor, Yvonne Spicer, announced she plans to take drug manufacturers and distributors to state court. Her goal is to recover damages to help the city cover some of the costs it's incurring in connection with addressing the epidemic. Now, according to Spicer, there were 213 opioid overdoses in Framingham in 2016, and 18 city residents died. Now, that's triple the number of deaths from 2012. The thing is, Framingham is not alone. When the city of Boston in February issued a request for information in preparation for its own potential lawsuit, Mayor Marty Walsh described the pharmaceutical industry as the main offender and sustainer of the opioid crisis. So there appear to be a wave of communities taking a similar approach, and not just in Massachusetts. And they're getting help from law firms that specialize in complex litigation. And these firms are willing to take cases on for free, but with the assumption that they'll take a cut of any settlement. So how might these cases be fought in court? Well, in Framingham's case, they plan to argue that pharmaceutical manufacturers misrepresented that opioid prescription drugs were a safe treatment for chronic pain and also discounted what they call the real and known threat of addiction resulting from long-term use. Now, the drug makers might argue in return that they're already a heavily regulated industry and that their products are approved by the government. It's also difficult to see the bright line between damage caused by addiction to prescription opioids and illegal drugs like heroin. The suit is reminiscent of the approach attorneys general took in the late 90s toward tobacco. That led to a settlement with the tobacco industry to deliver hundreds of millions of dollars in perpetuity to address public health costs absorbed by the government and taxpayers for the care of people with smoking-related illnesses. Now, whether these opioid cases are as successful as that, that's probably the thing to watch moving forward. We'll be watching. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Sam. The red flag gun bill has now made it through both branches of the legislature. Massachusetts is the sixth state in the nation to pass a version of such legislation in the wake of the Parkland school shooting. But it's not yet law. Katie Lannon, what's next? Well, the House and Senate are going to need to iron out the differences between these two bills. And the major difference there is the section of the bill that deals not with the extreme risk protection orders, but the st- with stun guns. Supporters of the bill hope those differences can be reconciled without a conference committee and done quickly. The clock's ticking on the end of formal sessions. It's July 31, right around the corner. Um, I think in the meantime, we'll expect to still hear from opponents of this bill as well, notably the Gun Owners Action League, who want the governor to either veto or amend the bill. But its chief house sponsor, 
Rep. Marjorie Decker, she thinks this is going to end up as law. And in terms of support, we did see the bill clear the House with what looks like veto-proof support. The degree of support in the Senate is a little bit more of a question mark since they took a voice vote on it rather than recording where each senator stands. Now, uh, Katie, you caught up with the bill sponsor, Rep. Decker, after the Senate vote on Thursday. Uh, President Chandler had a little celebration in her office after the session. Uh, What did uh, Representative Decker have to say? That's right, Sam. There were a lot of happy people in the Senate president's office on uh, Thursday afternoon, and a lot of them on their way in stopped to give Rep. Decker a hug, to tap her on the shoulder, to cheer a little with her. Um, She said she was elated after what had been a really a six-month grind. She filed this bill in January, not in response to a school shooting, but after speaking to a constituent whose uh, friend had committed suicide. And it really gained momentum after the Parkland shooting in February. So the representative, Cambridge Democrat Marjorie Decker, she said it felt a little surreal to see it come to fruition, not only with the result, but of the experience, the collaboration with women like Senator Cynthia Cream, the majority leader there, and President Chandler, the experience of working with youth activists and mothers and other people who she said kind of formed into a new coalition, a new group of activists that she's hoping to really see more of a presence from. They now have the experience of working for something tangible, engaging in the civic process, and they saw that they can get results. So I think that um, that group of people might be something for us all to watch. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Sam. Wednesday was a good day on Beacon Hill if you're a dog or a cat of the Commonwealth. House lawmakers passed the Paws Act II, a bill intended to bolster animal protection laws in Massachusetts, adding new reporting requirements and boosting penalties for animal abuse. Colin Young, you were down on the House floor. Pause 2 cleared the branch unanimously, but there was one provision, wasn't there, that uh, caused a bit of a fuss? Yeah, that's right. And to be perfectly blunt about it, Sam, it involved uh, the drowning of animals. The Pause Act 2 would make it a felony to drown any animal. Uh, and that, you know, while, while certainly everyone uh, in the House and in the Senate is uh, not saying that, that anyone should be drowning a dog or a cat or, or, or pets, uh, the, the anti-drowning provisions didn't sit quite well with a few people in the House. Um, it's not that rare, Sam, in, across Massachusetts for people who grow plants in their backyard, uh, backyard gardens, to uh, be in a perpetual war with chipmunks, voles, you know, all sorts of varmints. Uh, and a common way to get rid of them is to fill a five-gallon bucket halfway with water, throw some bird seed in there on top, lay a two-by-four sort of as a uh, walkway or plank, if you will, and uh, the chipmunks go in, and Alvin and his buddies go for a little swim, and then uh, and they don't come and out. And they don't come out exactly. Uh, so, what would the penalty be for uh, drowning an animal under this bill? So, the bill sets out a penalty of up to seven years in state prison and up to a five thousand dollar fine for the first offense. And subsequent offenses, the penalty would be up to ten years in state prison and up to a ten thousand dollar fine. Now, there are a few state reps: uh, Rep. Carmine Gentile, Rep. Donnie Berthume. Uh, and Rep. Paul Frost, who were trying to uh, uh, relax this provision a bit. Rep. Berthium uh, sponsored an amendment which was rejected, which would uh, make it illegal to drown a domestic animal, but would uh, still allow for the drowning of chipmunks and, uh, and whatnot. Sure. Uh, and Rep. Gentile offered a, another similar amendment, 
which would allow gardeners, uh, farmers, anyone growing vegetables or fruits, trying to uh, work on pest control to still continue to drown animals. Uh, and Rep. Frost brought up beavers. He said that that's going to be an area that uh, where this bill could cause um, or could have some unintended consequences. How so? Uh, he's saying that uh, the way that right now you take care of the beaver population is to drown the beavers. Uh, they use what's called a, um, a, a soft leg trap and the beaver is drowned. Frost said the alternative is to use these what he called ungodly big uh, shoreline traps. And he said the issue with those is that the trap is out there for several days and the beaver's exposed skin actually freezes to the metal trap, which he says is a far more inhumane way uh, than the, uh, you know, relatively quick drowning of the beaver. And it was Rep Gentile, I think, who brought up that uh, not drowning vermin in the backyard garden might lead to the use of um, rat poison or something, which could then become harmful to household pets, which the bill is designed to protect. Exactly. And there are a lot of folks just uh, sort of opposed to the use of uh, toxic chemicals uh, in, in their gardens anyways. Sure. So what's next for this bill? This bill, it looks like it's headed for a conference committee. Uh, Paul Frost was uh, urging that the conferees, whenever they're named, uh, take a look at the beaver issue to, to start. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, Sam. Have a good weekend. You too. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.